Uh, we're going to go through uh, four end times views tonight, uh, four views specifically uh, on the millennium. Um, we're going to jump right in, and uh, I'm not going to be able to cover everything uh, about every view, so I'm going to try to give you uh, an overview. I'm going to try to give you my critiques of a couple of them, uh, particularly two of them in particular. And then where we're going to end is I want to just spend a little bit of time in Revelation 20. Uh, because at the end of the day, that's, that's where we get the word millennium from. Now, there are more passages in Scripture that talk about eschatology, eschatology being the doctrine uh, of the end times. Uh, and so, you know, it, it is always a challenge to put the pieces together. Uh, John is, I think, particularly tough in the book of Revelation. And the reason being is the genre of, of the book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic. Uh, and so it's not written like a newspaper. It's not written like one of the epistles, like Paul's epistle uh, to the Romans. Uh, there are the first three chapters that are letters to some of the churches. But after that, the best way to think of the book of Revelation is to think of it as kind of an impressionistic painting. And you know how impressionistic paintings work. You slap color on the painting and you step back and you can see the picture. You can see what the artist is trying to, to convey. But in, I hope I'm having the right artist, uh, but in impressionism, if you zoom in really close, all you see is like splotches of colors. And sometimes that's what happens when people start interpreting uh, the book of Revelation. You know, you get weird interpretations like these locusts might be helicopters and this might be nuclear war. And, and that's really not how we're supposed to be interpreting the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is about future events. However, it was also written to encourage the church. So that's where we're going to get. Uh, but kind of what we want to do is I just want to give you an overview uh, of the four views. And in case you don't know, there is a fifth view, uh, the millennium. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the four views. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody is a little late there on the truth. That's maybe that's why nobody laughed. They couldn't hear me. So sorry about that. Um, so true story. I one time told tried to tell a joke while I was preaching. And there was like dead silence. And I said, oh, that was supposed to be a joke. And I got more laughs pick poking fun of myself and drawing attention to the fact that it was a bad joke uh, than the actual joke itself. OK, so the four views are uh, amillennialism, postmillennialism, uh, and then there are two views within premillennialism, uh, dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. So the key word in all of those is millennium, and a millennium in a, in a literal sense just means uh, a thousand years. And so in Revelation 20, we have this picture of the thousand years, and yet the question is, what is that picturing? Amillennialism, uh, basically, it's not saying there is no millennium, it's, it's just saying that we are, that the entire age of the church is what Revelations 20 is picturing there, that we currently reign with Christ and Satan is to some degree uh, restrained. Post-millennialism 
And, and I'll show you all these cool charts and diagrams or whatever, but just to give you the overview, post-millennialism says we're not in the millennium yet, but we will get in this time of peace and prosperity where the gospel goes to the nations, uh, where there is just peace around the world, the church is triumphant, and then the Lord will return. So the Lord returns post the millennium. That's why we call it post-millennium. And then the two views of premillennialism is that the Lord returns, he sets up a kingdom, and then there's the thousand years described in Revelation 20. Now, what I want to do before we go there and, and unpack these individually is I want to give you some big pieces that you need in place for whatever your eschatological view is, whatever your view of the end times these are some pieces, I think, that will help you in, in your understanding of Scripture. Number one, there's common, particularly in the Judaism leading up to Jesus' era, and you find seeds of it in the Old Testament, you find seeds of it in Second Temple Judaism, is that the Jewish thinkers divided history into two ages, this age and the age to come. And so you'll see sometimes in the Scriptures the phrase, in the last days or in these last days. And so as, as the Old Testament prophets uh, looked forward to, to the coming of Christ, they didn't always carefully distinguish out uh, from their perspective uh, the two aspects of the coming. So think of it this way. Think of yourself uh, going on a hike and you look off in the distance and there are two mountains and they're kind of like right next to each other. And as you peek over the one mountain, you suddenly realize that there's a gap of miles between the first mountain and the second mountain. That's often how the prophets work in the Old Testament. They're, they're looking forward to the coming of Christ and they say, look at all he's gonna do, look at the sacrifice, look at the fulfillments, look at the coming kingdom all of those things, and then Jesus Christ arrives, and you, so you have the first coming, and you realize there's kind of a, a gap of time between it. But you do see some of this language in the Old Testament. So uh, Genesis 49.1, uh, in the days to come there. Numbers 24.14, in the latter days. Isaiah 2.2, particularly a prophecy of Christ. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Uh, Daniel 2.28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And so this age, uh, and you'll see this in Paul, he'll talk about this present evil age, uh, is filled with sin. Things are not right. The age to come is where God sets everything right, and ultimately at the end of the age we have the new heavens uh, and the new earth. What we see in terms of New Testament fulfillment, and this is a view I think you need to have regardless of your view of the millennium. So this is a piece that needs to be in your system and your thinking before we even get to the millennium. We call it inaugurated eschatology. And what inaugurated eschatology is basically saying is that Jesus Christ in his first coming begins to fulfill those things which were called the last days. That particularly in his death, 
resurrection, and ascension. So Jesus comes on the scene. He says, what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Things with the kingdom start. The kingdom is present in the king. Not everybody agrees with this, and I'll talk about the one view that particularly doesn't. However, this is everywhere in the New Testament. This idea that, that um, Christ begins to fulfill the age to come. You look at the Old Testament, and one of the key things in the, the coming of the age to come, two key things are one, the resurrection, and two, the presence of the Holy Spirit in God's people. You have the resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection, to use Paul's language, starting in Jesus. And, and that language, first fruits, is so important because think about how a first fruit works. It's the first part of the harvest which guarantees the rest will come in. That's a guarantee for our resurrection. But Jesus' resurrection isn't distinct from the resurrection that the rest of us will have. He just gets it early. He's the first fruit. He's the first part of that harvest. It is eschatology, end times, if you will, starting. The presence of the Holy Spirit, Joel chapter 2, is quoted in Acts, that in these last days I will pour out my spirit. And Peter goes, this you guys are seeing with tongues is that, that promise, that whole idea that we as the body of Christ are sealed in the spirit as part of the new covenant, that is fulfillment language of this age to come. The idea of Christ reigning as a king. So you have a fulfillment in Hebrews 2 of, of Psalm 8, that he's putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, Hebrews says, he left nothing outside of his control at present. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What is Hebrews saying? Everything is under Jesus' feet, at least positionally. And yet we don't see everything under his feet. Death has been defeated by the cross, but death is still present in the creation. It's this already not yet. You have already aspects of the age to come, and you have some not yet aspects, things that still need to be wrapped up. So we don't get all, we're not in the full-on end times yet, but Jesus started something, and what he started isn't distinct from what he's going to do when he comes again. Hebrews, or 1 Corinthians 15, 25, this is, will be important uh, later, for he must reign until he has put, uh oh, it's like all his enemies under his feet. And then it will go on to say, uh, the last enemy is death. This is important. He is reigning. It's present tense. He must reign until, and then we'll see, he hands the kingdom uh, back over to the Father. Uh, this inaugurated eschatology, most New Testament scholars, like 99.9% .9 of New Testament scholars, uh, uh, would hold to this, whether they're amillennial, premillennial, uh, except for one group that doesn't really like it, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but the idea is this. Now I'm going to take you back and we're just think of all of God's redemptive history for a sec. 
and go back to the garden. What did God promise Adam in the garden? What would have happened if he would, if Adam would have obeyed and kicked Satan out of the garden? What? Somebody said it. Yeah, he would have rewarded him with life. And, and so we talk about Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve, they were innocent, but they didn't have a secured state. They weren't, um, they weren't glorified, to use Paul's language. How do we know? Because they, could, they had the potential to sin. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will not have the potential to sin. We, we will be one step further than Adam and Eve were in the garden. And one of the things that you see in the new heavens and the new earth is you see the tree of life. Some of the older Reformed writers, even before the era of biblical theology, but it especially prominent in, in biblical theology, have really honed in on that to say why. Why the tree of life? Because that's symbolic of that eschatological life, that life that God has always destined us to have, that, that is glorified, that is uh, growing in the knowledge and understanding of the God, that is secured, that doesn't have the potential to sin. In the garden, Adam is put on a test. And he fails. He's, he's supposed to be the image bearer. He's supposed to be the vice regent over God's creation, you know, the, the little king under the big king God. And he's supposed to subdue the earth and kick out Satan. He fails at doing that. And so we have then all of the stories of redemption and God's plan. But at the end of the day, the, there are two Adams. There's the first Adam and there's the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so in his coming, Jesus does what Adam failed to do. Now, Jesus didn't have sin, but he passes temptations, the, the three Temptations of Satan are the perfect example. But even on the cross, he doesn't, he doesn't renounce God or curse God and die. He's truly faithful to the end. He fulfills the law. And he's granted resurrection life, not just because he's the eternal son of God, but because in his humanity, he fulfilled all righteousness. And so he's crowned with glory and honor and he ascends up into heaven and now in humanity, in his human nature, glorified, he reigns. He is given what Adam was offered. This offer to Adam precedes the fall. Uh, one of my favorite authors has a statement that he says, eschatology precedes soteriology. In other words, before there was even a need for Adam to be saved, there was this offer to Adam if you obey, if you subdue the garden, you will receive the eschatological life. You will be a partaker in the tree of life. That's why they have to be kicked out of the garden. And so this begins to get fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes. What I want to do tonight is not just give you, okay, this, what does Revelation 20 mean? But where do we fit this all in the plan and scope of God? God is bringing all things under the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ reigns over all things. 
He will reign over all things, and his last enemy to be defeated will be death. But eschatology, end times, isn't just something that happens in the future. Now, we call it the doctrine of future things. But, but if we're looking at the language of Scripture, the future things that were promised already began at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we live in that time, kind of to go back to my analogy of the mountains, we live in that time between the two. Uh, we tend to call that something like the overlap of the ages, the already, not yet. We already have certain things in Jesus, but there are clear not yet things that need to happen. All of the debates about eschatology boil down to this. Which ones do we have already and which ones do we have not yet? Is the kingdom of God offered in the Gospels an already thing that we have? Or was it postponed and is it not yet? And you can go into all of these things. And so that's, that's where the, if, you know, if you're sitting here and going, Tim, I don't know what my view of the millennium is. Just tell me what the right one is. Uh, or you're, you're hoping to figure it out tonight. Or you're still putting the pieces of the puzzle together. I wanted to start with this to say, this is a big piece. The millennium issue would be either right before, right after the second coming, or this whole gap in between. But if you don't get this, the first coming, the second coming, if you don't get this language of, of um, the beginning of, of the age to come, uh, Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time God sent his son, that's, that's this age to come language. Hebrews 1, 1, God has spoken in, in various places and in various ways to the prophets, but in these last days, God spoke in his son. He's not just saying like, oh yeah, recently God sent his kid down. No, he's saying the last days, that thing that we were looking for, the culmination of God revealing himself, it started when Jesus came. Questions, comments on that? That's maybe a little more than you wanted because you were thinking we'd be on the millennium. Lynette is happy because she's like, you're, you're singing my amillennial song. <laughs> well, so my point is this, though. Um, the historic... Uh-oh. What happened? The historic premillennial and the amillennial are very similar now on this, already not yet. And so regardless of what you... Uh, you take there there is a lot of unity over this uh, in fact if we're fighting over premillennial and amillennial and and look when I say fighting I think all of us around here have good relationships so I'm, I'm amping it up a little bit but but in reality there are some people that get very passionate and very divisive in churches over this but my thing is like if you're if you're fighting over that and you haven't even gotten this you're fighting in in the wrong spot uh, it's kind of would be like those people, you know, when Left Behind was popular, they could tell you every second of the tribulation, but ask them to talk about the Trinity for more than like two sentences. And they're like, uh, like if you can articulate your eschatology like that better than you can the Trinity, uh, you're out of balance a little bit. Question? No, I'm just okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's go to Amillennial. Uh, amillennialism here and I'm going to kind of give you the overview so hopefully this will make sense a little bit 
You have kind of just my, my standard timeline again. You have the cross of Christ here. I'll talk about that first resurrection and second resurrection in a second. But basically, they would say the millennium is, is symbolic of the entire church age, not necessarily a thousand years. Uh, amillennialism is what it is called. It makes it sound like they don't believe in a millennium. No, they're saying, look, John is intentionally apocalyptic. He's giving us this picture. We're not supposed to parse it like a newspaper. We're not supposed to be, they would say, probably like hyper-literal or something like this. They would say, look, we're just trying to be faithful to what John says. Then you have over here uh, the, the coming of Christ. So the saints are taken up to join Christ in the clouds. They come down with him. That's where you have the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. After that, you would have the judgment. And then you go right to the new heavens and, and the new earth. Couple key uh, things about this. Number one, for this view, the kingdom of God that Jesus offers and starts is synonymous with the millennium. They would say, look, Jesus Christ is reigning. He's reigning in heaven. Uh, Colossians chapter three, uh, we are seated with him spiritually in a sense. They would say Romans chapter six, we're raised with him spiritually in a sense. Uh, and so this kingdom and what John is talking about in the millennium, John is giving us this crazy apocalyptic kind of impressionist painting of Jesus Christ reigns now. And they would say the binding of Satan in that passage, which we'll talk about later, uh, they would say that just is Satan is restrained so that the gospel can go out. He can't stop the gospel, which I want to say amen to that part, right? Because Satan can't stop the gospel. There, there are elements of these things that are true, right? So we're not bashing everything, even if we don't agree. There are two views. So in Revelation 20, verse 4, it talks about the saints being martyred uh, and they came alive. There are two views on what this coming alive means. One is this kind of, uh, it, you came alive every time somebody gets saved. That's, that's their, they're enlivened in their hearts. They're, there is a spiritual resurrection that goes in your heart, on in your heart, right? You're dead in your sins, now you're alive. So they would say the, the first resurrection in, in described in Revelation 20 happens anytime, you can see it there, R1, 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 anytime anybody gets saved anywhere in the millennium, that's a spiritual resurrection that John was talking about. Another view says that anytime someone dies and goes to heaven, they're alive in the presence of God, waiting under the throne. Uh, they're given a robe actually elsewhere in Revelation. And so they say, John's actually describing what happens to the saints that pass away during the hard times in the book of Revelation. Uh, the thousand years, again, spoken of in Revelation 21 to 10, is the same period of time in which the citizens of this age await the age to come. Though, given the fact of the present reality of the kingdom of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, the age to come is already a present reality for the believer in Jesus Christ. And that's Kim Riddlebarger. He's actually is an amillennialist. Uh, Satan in the abyss. So Satan in Revelation 20 is thrown in the abyss. I've already mentioned this. Is the same thing that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 12, 29, where Jesus is accused of doing miracles by the hand of Satan. And Jesus tells a little parable and he says, look, a thief can't come in and plunder 
the house unless he first binds up the strong man in the house. And so what they say is, is that that verse is illustrating Revelation 20, Satan being bound in chains, meaning he can't stop the advance of the kingdom. He can't stop people from being saved. Now, I do think Jesus is saying something about the kingdom in Matthew 20, and I do think he is saying uh, Satan's power is limited. Satan's power, um, he, he's called the God of this age. And, and in the coming of this kingdom, God's kingdom, the kingdom of the Son, is rolling back the power of this age. That's why he's doing those miracles. That's why we do see uh, people getting saved. The question is, should we use one verse to interpret the others? I'm not disagreeing with what Matthew 12 says, and I'm not disagreeing with Revelation 20 that Satan is in the abyss. The question is, are they? It's, it's one of those things where we should always use scripture to interpret scripture, right? But we always have to ask ourselves, am I using the right verse to interpret this scripture? And, and that's where the question for me comes down, and we'll talk about that. Uh, in a second. So you can see that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years in Revelation 24. They would say that that's the present experience of the believer. We're reigning spiritually with Christ. Any questions about that? How many of you have heard of that view before? A millennial. Okay, some of you. So it's not, it's not totally. Look, uh, uh, this has a lot of good things, right? Um, the idea that, that Christ's kingdom is advancing, great thing. The idea that Satan's power is limited, amen. The idea of the already not yet, absolutely. And there is a sense that we as believers reign with Christ. But right now, we're also suffering like Christ suffered. So there's all, an already not yet, but what I would say is this amillennialism is too much already, not enough, not yet, if that makes sense. Okay, let's keep, let's keep moving. Hopefully I'm, I'm not putting you to sleep. Uh, Post-millennialism. So the millennium happens and Christ's return is after the millennium. Now this view was actually really popular uh, in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, pretty much right before World War I because everybody was optimistic, you know, you know how the Great War, World War I, it like just destroyed people's view of humanity. We thought we were, you know, the Enlightenment was progressing and everybody's getting better and we'll never have a big war again. And World War II was just, or World War I was brutal. Uh, and it just kind of shook everybody and it's like, no, evil still is advancing. This view is actually coming back and being pretty popular again. And, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But here's, here's the idea, and this is right from uh, one of their holders, uh, one of the advocates. There's a period of time in the latter days of the church, uh, of the church militant, when, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the martyrs shall appear again. True religion will be greatly quickened, you can tell this guy wrote in the 1800s, and, and revived, and the members of the church, uh, church uh, Christ's churches, become so conscious of their strength in Christ uh, that they shall, to, to an extent unknown before, triumph over the power of evil both within and without. Uh, Kenneth Gentry is another more recent holder to this. He says, gospel success 
will produce a time prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of the peoples and in the people and nations. So you can kind of see, uh, again, my timeline. There's Christ's death and resurrection. The little man is kind of symbolically where, where we would be. And they would say, yes, we're in the church age, but what we're waiting for is we're waiting for the gospel to spread so much and so far and be so life transforming that, that society turns around uh, for the better. Uh, then after things are really great, it's peaceable. People are following the Lord. Large majorities are walking in his ways. Some will even say, look, nations start to become Christians. We have just laws. We have, we have true righteousness being practiced at all forms of the government. Um, you know, they, some of these people are kind of in the vein of Christian nationalism. Uh, then the Lord will return. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth then will take place after that. So basically the church becomes so good and strong in obeying the Lord, and, and not on our own strength, right? They would say this is the working of the Holy Spirit, that, that the kingdom is set up before the Lord uh, returns. Now, most of these guys wouldn't deny that the kingdom started in some sense with the coming of Christ, uh, but what they're saying is we're really waiting for a future physical manifestation of it, and you'll see it when the church is thriving, growing, everybody's walking uh, with the Lord. So, you know, you work at a secular job right now um, and, and life is tough and we see what's going on in our government and, you know, they just passed the, the Marriage Act uh, and some of those things, which is clearly not in line with, with uh, what God teaches about marriage. Well, imagine if down the road we became as a church so um, energized in our evangelism and our discipleship that, that everybody at your work was now a Christian and everybody was voting, and all the guys putting and ladies putting laws in place are making laws that align with Scripture. What's that going to do? Well, that's going to—it's going to usher in peace and prosperity, and put an end to wars and 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 all of these things. It, it's kind of like everybody on earth will get so sanctified because they got saved uh, that all this evil and sin—it'll just kind of be tamped down. It won't cease, but it'll be tamped down and practically non-existent. Questions or comments? Shouts of protest? Let's let's test you a little bit. What's what you can see where my criticisms are going to be? What's wrong with this view? Think through your scriptures a little bit, maybe if you have a verse. Oh, um, yeah, sorry. So, yeah, they would see the, tribu the tribulation or generally, basically what they say is tribulations will fall away, trials. and They would also tend to say that some of the stuff that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, that great tribulation, the great distress, they would say that's past. That already happened. The tribulation described in Revelation, they would say that that's past as well, that that was fulfilled in the end of the Roman Empire with, with the Caesars proclaiming to be God and stuff like that. 
sorry, I forgot I put that on there. Um, yeah, so you will find some views today. It's popular among theonomists. People, theonomists are people that want the entire world basically run by Old Testament law. And, and if that sounds crazy to an extent, yes, it really gets that. Like we're not talking, we're not just talking moral law. Uh, now they wouldn't redo sacrifices and, and all that stuff, but they would absolutely be like, hey, if the Old Testament says death penalty for this, it's not up for debate. Um, you could still eat shrimp because they would see that as ceremonial law if you're worried. But, but theonomism, theonomism has a whole set of other problems it's not wrong to say the Old Testament matters and we should seek to obey the Old Testament, but there are parts of the Old Testament that are, are moral law. There's also parts that were set up as national law for Israel in her day, that while it reflects the moral heart of God, that God does judge and punish sin, it's not necessarily like a one-for-one -one application to, to modern day uh, law making. Um, also, preterism or partial preterism is this idea, as I mentioned, that, that a couple of the things in the New Testament that, that we think of as Jesus' coming and the tribulations, they would say, well, that already happened. And because that already happened, now we can just look forward to this millennium time. We're going to get to a point in this life, they would say, where the church won't be persecuted anymore, where the church won't have a hard time because the church will start to triumph over the kingdom of darkness. Any thoughts? Questions? Yeah. That's a good question. I'm not sure to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, if you. Yeah, there's some Reformed Baptists. So uh, if you've ever heard the name Doug Wilson, he's a big proponent of it. I, I do not generally recommend. I do not recommend his things. Um, Jeff Durbin. Yeah. And then James White, who's now at Jeff Durbin's church. James White has been really. Yeah, he just recently switched. But he's also been very, uh, very vocal uh, as well. Um, and so, honestly, like post-millennialism is on the rise uh, again, and we need to be uh, worry, wary about it. Uh, one of the big problems is I, I think uh, it can create a false sense of security in terms of what's coming for the church. Uh, another thing is it tends to get wrapped up in um, politics, yeah, thank you. Um, it, it tends to get wrapped up in, we've got to get out there and change the world. Now, some of this is a reaction to the old school dispensationalism, where it was like, hey, just get people saved, get their souls saved, they're gonna get raptured, don't worry about changing things here on earth, because it's just gonna get judged anyways. That's not a good view either. But you don't correct one view by swinging the pendulum so far out into the other view. You don't see in the New Testament uh, this expectation 
that Christians are going to establish a whole Christian society. Now, you do see, I think, and it, it is right to say, yeah, there are Christians. If you're called to be involved in politics, go be involved in politics and be the best Christian that you can be in that. You know, if you're called to be in healthcare or whatever, like, yes, try to have an impact in the world around you. Love people's bodies and souls. Like, we're not just trying to get them saved. We're also trying to disciple them and see transformation uh, in their life. But at the end of the day, uh, this post-millennialism is too optimistic about all the things that we're going to accomplish. And, and frankly, it doesn't wrestle enough with just the ongoing presence of sin that we are always going to have until the Lord returns. You are always going to have his enemies. You are always going to have antichrist to oppose. And I think if we're reading Revelation right and we're reading some of the other passages in Scripture, the anticipation is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Like, do I want persecution to come to America? No, not particularly. But my hope is also not in turning America into a Christian nation. Um, frankly, some of the views out there on what a Christian nation should look like are, are a little bit scary and not very Christian. Um, and, and so do I want Christians to influence society around them, to make changes, to love one another, to have that pay off in tangible ways? Absolutely. But you can do and say and believe all that without going the post-millennial route. Question. Yeah. Throughout church history, were these four like, categories of views like common, or were these views kind of like developed in individual history? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and I kind of had opted not to go the historical route, just kind of the pick the four and go through them in like a logical section. Oh. But no, no, that's a that's a really good question. I'm just telling you why I hadn't addressed it, so I'm actually glad you asked the question. Um, historically, I think what's fair to say is in the early church, in the first 300 years, now I'm talking post-apostolic era, uh, you saw historic, what we'll call historic premillennialism, a future thousand years. That was, that was then you had amillennialism start to grow in popularity. Augustine was the big one. Uh, with that. And so there's a little bit of debate, you know, was historical premillennialism more prominent? Were they kind of equal? Uh, I would say then for a long period in church history, it was largely a version of amillennial. And, and interestingly, amillennialism and postmillennialism used to not be distinguished very well because they, they were just looking forward to the return of Christ. Uh, if you read Charles Hodge, for example, it's tough to tell if he's pre-millennial or post-millennial, or excuse me, amillennial or post-millennial, because even amillennialists believe that there will be a spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Heck, even the dispensational premillennialist believes that. So sometimes it's hard to know where exactly post-millennial and amillennialism started getting distinguished. Uh, you did have a, a vein, I think, of historic pre-mill down through the era, but the reformers were pretty much in this kind of ah-mill, post-millish camp. Jonathan Edwards was really <coughs> post-mill, so kind of in the 1800s, I think that's where you had a little more distinction. Post-mill was kind of the big, the big thing, um, and then you had 
dispensationalism gets started with Darby and Schofield. And, and the early 1900s, particularly in the Bible college movement and in the fundamentalist circles, um, dispensational premillennialism just blew up and exploded. And everybody was that way. Uh, if you've seen, you know, if you've read the books or seen of the books, the Left Behind series, that's all dispensational premillennial. Um, and it's probably honestly not even good dispensational premillennialism. Um, <laughs> You know, there are some that are better scholars at it uh, than, than others. Uh, but I would say more recently, say from like the 1950s up through the 2000s, uh, the two big options were dispensational premillennial and amillennialism. And historic premill was kind of coming in third, if we can put it that way. Postmillennialism was dying. Now it's like resurging. It's probably one of the faster growing uh, ones. Isn't that a book that's kind of like a research where you just read more and more about the historic development of the end times? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple books out there. There's one like Four Views on the Millennium, but I don't know that it goes into the historical developments. I'd have to, I'd have to get back to you on the actual historical one. Yeah, I think. Yeah. It is interesting too. I mean, we, we shouldn't pretend, we, we love to think that, you know, at the end of the day, we're just arriving at our view because all we're doing is interpreting scripture. But, but honestly, we shouldn't, we shouldn't pretend that there weren't like social and cultural forces at work, particularly um, uh, some of the early, a lot of the early Puritans, now that I think about it, uh, were, were millennialists. And then Jonathan Edwards was post-millennialist. And that really took off, particularly as you see, like the West expanding, and you know, now we have the church in America, and we're we're reaching all these people. Look at the gospel going everywhere. See, this is this is we're we're getting close to that millennial fulfillment. So there was that whole enlightenment spirit too. That as man gets better, we're going to figure things out. We're going to cure diseases. They would say like, hey, that's an effect of the kingdom. Uh, in fact, uh, Lorraine. Boetner, one of the guys that writes in a book, he's dead now, but he writes in the, the Four Views on the Millennium book. He actually, part of his argument is uh, that look at how medicine is exp expanding and look at how travel and look at all the things that we can do. And they would kind of say like, hey, that's taking dominion over God's creation. Um, I, I would argue against it, which uh, here's one of the, so, so there is that book, The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views. And, and what they do is each author writes a chapter on his view, and then the other three critique it. Here's Eldon Ladd's critique of, of Boetner's on postmillennialism. He goes, there's so little appeal to scripture that I have little to criticize. <laughs> he literally <laughs> writes two paragraphs in, in response. Uh, Anthony Hokema, another good reformed guy, uh, his response is this. One would certainly expect that an evangelical scholar who embraces post-millennialism while holding to the inspiration and normativity of the Bible would give us an exegetical study of this passage, talking about Revelation 20, uh, to show that his view of the millennium grows directly out of study, uh, but one looks in vain for such a study. Now that's not to say that all the, the holders of post-millennialism uh, don't handle scripture, but uh, I do think there is scripture lacking. 
James White was mentioned. He's one that's become post-millennial uh, more recently. Uh, he argues that if we're going to take the Old Testament literally, um, particularly the, you know, like the passages where the plowshares are beat down, or the swords are beat into plowshares and all of this, like we need to see that as, as a future time uh, that's coming. And, and somehow he works that out as something uh, that's going to come uh, before uh, Christ's return. Uh, again, I think this doesn't put enough emphasis on the power and the authority of Christ and his coming that will vanquish evil. We don't see the church growing in the New Testament to the point of everything is going well and there's basically no uh, persecution or evil, particularly, I think, if we're interpreting the book of Revelation right. Yeah, Wayne. Uh, they are, yeah, that's probably seventies or eighties maybe. So it's probably not the best representation of some of the modern authors, but, but frankly, um, because some of these post-millennialists, post-millennial guys are preterists and stuff, they, they really just don't have good, I mean, they're going to try to give you their exegesis, right? But I just don't see them as being faithful to scripture. Uh, now, when I was in college, like I said, post-millennialism was kind of figured it was on the way out. So I was like, yeah, I'm not going to read a whole lot because, you know, and now in the last 20 years, there's just been a whole lot more. Again, the Doug Wilsons and Gary DeMar and a few others in these reform camps have really made it made it prevalent. Can you go to the I'm sorry. Yeah. Pre yeah. The preterist is the idea that uh, the destruction of Jerusalem fulfills the great tribulation uh, in Matthew 24. It's, it's already like, I forget what the background of the words is, but it's already happened is basically the idea. So we would look forward and we would say, right, hey, there is a tribulation coming. There are things that are going to get worse. There is an antichrist. The preterist basically says, no, 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 no. That was fulfilled in the first century. And they try to tie it to this or that figure, usually a Caesar or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Preterism is a whole other discussion. There are some things in Matthew 24 that were fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem. But like what, what Jesus does is like what the Old Testament prophet does. He looks forward to this near fulfillment, which I think is the destruction of Jerusalem to give you an understanding of what the future fulfillment is going to look like. And that's, that's in his return. Yeah, Wayne. Just to add to what you were saying about even <coughs> recent attempts within the last 20 years or so, people trying to exegete scripture and defend this view, most of them tend to lean towards the on-millennial rapture. Yeah. Which absolutely fails this. Yeah. So there's a whole big bag of mess that's like piled into this. And, and you can't just tease out one and say, oh, that's kind of a, an oddball view. Can you explain it's, theonomy? Oh, yeah. The, theonomy, I think I mentioned earlier, but theonomy is that idea that, that basically we should run all governments by Old Testament law, or at least the, the moral law aspect. So as strict as the Old Testament is on the death penalty and stuff, we should be that strict. Yeah, just, just, you know, post-millennialism is bad and just move on. Um, 
No, I mean, you should, should be a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, um, strengths, good things, like, yes, we want to believe that, that um, the gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. Um, I, I think that's pretty clear in, in scripture. But I don't think that that always translates into the church in, in a militant sense being triumphant. Militant in the sense of we're going to rule the day culturally. Like the church will be triumphant in, in, in its suffering. The church will be triumphant like Jesus was triumphant on the cross. And, and we model those Christ-like uh, attitudes. And people will glorify God even though they, they're persecuting us, First Peter tells us. But we never see the end of this uh, in this age of that tension between the kingdom of God uh, and the kingdom of the evil one. So if you thought the last few charts were crazy, this chart gets really crazy. Dispensational premillennialism. So, again, you have the timeline and you have a lot of stuff in here. So you have the death of Christ. The kingdom of God was offered in the New Testament, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. They would say the Jews rejected the kingdom, killed Jesus, or some would say they rejected the kingdom after his death. Uh, so the kingdom, this reign of God in Israel, is put on hold. It's postponed until the Lord returns. You can see the arrows there and the arrow coming down. They would then say, we are in the church age. And the church age is an actual parenthesis, hence the parentheses there, in the plan and purpose of God. They would say God's plan in the Old Testament was working with Israel. She was the chosen nation. And when Israel rejected the kingdom that was offered, God instituted, he knew about this from before the foundations of the world and planned it this way, but he instituted uh, a sort of plan B. So he's done right now working with Israel as a nation. We're not saying, they don't say that Jews aren't getting saved, but just in a national sense, God is done working with Israel and right now he is working with the church. So they would say, the, the very old dispensa the older dispensationalists, the Charles Ryrie, they would say there have always been and always will be two peoples of God. There's Israel and there is the church. Now, they would say everybody gets saved the same way, right? But there is still two families. There's Israel and, and you're in it by blood, but you're also in it through faith. So in the Old Testament, you could have the Rahabs that would come in. And then they would say there is in the New Testament, the church, which is primarily Gentile, but not related to the kingdom. It's, it's a different plan for the moment. Yeah, Darius. Oh, I'm confused because Rahab wasn't Gentile, she wasn't of Israel. Somebody had us. Yeah, I mean, they would say she joined, she joined by faith or something uh, like right. that. But, but they would make the point that she joined the nation. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, there's a lot we could say about this. They would then say that, that at a future time, unknown at any moment, there will be the rapture of the church. So the church is taken up into the clouds 
and we are transformed in a resurrection and we go to be with Jesus. So Jesus comes down like halfway, if you will. We go and meet Jesus in the air and instead of coming down the rest of the way, I mean, the language is in 1 Thessalonians that we do meet Jesus in the air. That's not the problem. They say we go away back up into heaven. That's the church. The church is raptured. Now God can go back to his plan with Israel, which leads to seven years of tribulation, the coming of the Antichrist. And believe me, they have all kinds of stuff that goes on in here. That's they can write the whole Left Behind series in that little gap <laughs> there. Um, then you'll have the resurrection at Christ's return of Israel, the Israelites that got saved during the tribulation and any other believers that got saved, they'll get resurrected at the end. So you can see there's kind of an R1 for the church, resurrection one, and there's kind of an R1 for Israel. Then you have the millennium, a thousand years of peace, followed by the, the final resurrection of the ungodly. You have the judgment there, and then you have the new heavens and the new earth. Um, the problem, well, so the church age I mentioned is a parenthesis. God's kingdom is offered, rejected, and then God builds his church. Uh, during the tribulation, God goes back to working with Israel as the church is raptured. This is important. The distinction between Israel and the church leads to the belief that the church will be taken from the earth before the beginning of the tribulation. This really is a whole system of thought, uh, a way of interpreting the Old Testament even. Some of the older dispensational writers would go so far as to say the new covenant has not been fulfilled. Some would say there are two new covenants. There's one for Israel, and we're waiting for that. That was the one in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then there's the new covenant for the church. So the church gets benefits, if you will, but they don't get like the full covenant. Um, one, one of my friends would probably say, who's not a dispensationalist, would probably say something along the lines of this. Um, God doesn't have a wife and a mistress. There, there are not uh, two peoples of God. There, there's not two. That, we were joking the other day, and he's like, this is not uh, Leah and Rachel. And the first one didn't work out, so we took, took the second one. Um, um, so they would say there is a literal fulfillment of the millennium. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> Tweet that, somebody. Uh, they would say there's a literal fulfillment of the millennium. And look, this is not a problem. This is a good impulse to say, hey, we should take scripture in the way that scripture intends. The question is always, are we getting apocalyptic literature uh, correctly? They would also say, now this is a problem. Jesus on the Davidic throne is only future and in the millennium. So now this is where it gets tricky. There are at least three categories of dispensationalism. It's gone through some changes. There's classical dispensationalism, so all the way back to the Schofield Bible, early 1900s. There's what they called revised dispensationalism. That's like the Charles Ryrie types, the John Walvoord. Walvoord's kind of, he was the second president of Dallas Theological Seminary, if you've ever heard the name. Um, Walvoord's kind of probably between the two a little bit. He might actually be more classical 
But Ryrie, Charles Ryrie is the big name. He recently passed away, I think, within the last five or six years. Um, but he was the big stalwart of the revised. Then there is a, a smaller vein called progressive dispensationalism, which don't get thrown off by the word progressive. In this case, it's good. Um, they actually argue, they actually do argue that Jesus is currently reigning in a Davidic capacity just in heaven. But the traditional dispensationalist says this, um, Jesus Christ came, the kingdom was postponed. So none of this inaugurated eschatology stuff. And so Jesus Christ, yes, he's reigning. He went back in, up into heaven. He's reigning over the church. He's reigning at God's right hand. But they would say that is different than the promise of the Old Testament that Jesus, the Messiah, would reign on David's throne. They take David's throne to mean physically, literally in Jerusalem. The problem with this is that even in the Old Testament, David was symbolically uh, a son of God, not in the divine sense, but in the sense of this is my chosen anointed one. David was God's right hand man. And the idea of reigning and ruling in, Dave, in, the, in Jerusalem, there's a place in Chronicles, I should have looked it up, but it, he calls his throne the Lord's throne. There, there is no distinction between being at God's right hand and being on earth. The idea is that the earthly kingdom, the earthly throne, is, is a shadow of what was to come in the future. Just like those earthly sacrifices in the temple was a shadow of what needed to happen in heaven. So the problem with dispensationalism is it doesn't listen to the hermeneutics of scripture itself. It doesn't do justice to what the word of God actually says. So we can look up a lot of different verses here, but I'm going to give you some of the big ones. Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 16 uh, to 21. So that's where Pentecost happens, right? And, and we get, why don't you just uh, flip over there and, and just look that up if you have your Bibles uh, with you. And we're not going to read all of it, but I, I do want you to see this language here. Starting in verse 16. But this is what Joel uttered. So by the way, there's Pentecost. Everybody's standing around. The Jews start going, man, it's early in the day. Come on. Meanwhile, you know, if you don't speak any of those languages, you just speak the, the Aramaic, you're hearing utter chaos as everybody's speaking different languages. The people that are hearing it in their languages are probably going like, oh my gosh, you speak my language. What is going on? You know, like I'm sure they're not being silent, right? So just imagine the chaos, and then they go, oh, you guys are all just a bunch of drunkards. And what does Peter say? He, uh, Luke writes this, but this is what uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And, and it, it goes on um, in that. But, but basically, uh, what Peter says, guys, is that Joel, 
this is what you're seeing. You're seeing exactly what Joel said would happen. The last days have begun to be fulfilled. And he goes on and he says, how do we know this, right? Because the Jesus Christ, according to the plan and purpose and foreknowledge of God, was crucified. God raised him up from the dead. And then he quotes Psalm 16 about how the Sheol is unable to hold him. And then it goes down on through uh, verse 32. This Jesus Christ, this Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses, that being therefore exalted at the right hand and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on this that you, your, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's saying this, what you're seeing, this, Joel 2, is that. And it's connected to the death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus Christ. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy for your footstools. So David is not the ultimate fulfiller of that psalm. Jesus is. But it's a messianic psalm. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that this, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now, Jesus is and always different than the kingdom of God. No, no, no. This is that. This is the advancing of the kingdom of God. God reigns in the person of his son who is the Davidic king. There is literally no concept for a Davidic Messiah who's not reigning, but's up in heaven ruling in a non-Davidic capacity. It's just not being faithful to what we're saying, to what scripture's saying. Now, you can certainly say, hey, there are aspects of the reign. We do think God will bring his kingdom to earth. Hebrews 2 says, all things are under his feet, yet we don't see all things under his feet. So there is this aspect of everything's under his feet because he's been put in authority. There will come a day when we actually see everything under his feet. So we have to have some view in our eschatology for a time where we see it. And we see him reigning and ruling and we see him conquering death and the last enemy, which is death. Uh, now you got me preaching. I'm, I'm stoked up here. Uh, Acts chapter 15. This is a really powerful one as well. So Acts 15 is the council of Jerusalem. You'll remember people didn't believe the Gentiles were getting saved. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. So by the way, he, he had recounted how they're getting the Holy Spirit. And so that's a way of saying like, hey, they're in the same kingdom that we're in because they're getting the same spirit that we're getting. Uh, then he says, um, yeah, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from it a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. So now he quotes Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will build, rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That remnant of mankind, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord 
and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Thus saith the Lord, who makes these things known from old. James is saying, the reason we know that Gentiles are in is because God promised it would happen. And when did God promise that it would happen? When the tent of David, the house of David, the, the rule of David, the future Messiah, when that is rebuilt. So if the Gentiles are in, and James is arguing, how do we know the Gentiles are in? He's saying, we know they're in because this is what God has done. He's rebuilt the house of David. He hasn't postponed it. He did it. Guess what some dispensational commentators in Acts do with Joel, uh, Peter's use of Joel and uh, James's use of Amos? Somebody want to venture a guess? Peter was wrong. They say Peter and James, particularly I've seen it more times with Peter, he didn't have the right hermeneutic. These guys are the apostles. They, they learned, yeah, God. Well, they, they would say something along the lines of Luke recorded what Peter actually said, and that's in the word of God, so it's the word of God in that sense, but to illustrate how it was wrong. Guys, if you learned your hermeneutics from Jesus, I don't think your hermeneutics are going to be wrong. Um, that's not to say that Peter and James and, and others couldn't make mistakes in the New Testament. But the whole argument for Gentiles being equally saved falls apart if the kingdom wasn't rebuilt, if the house of David wasn't rebuilt. We could go on and we could look at how Psalm 2, Psalm 8, and Psalm 110 are fulfilled in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, you knew I had to sneak Hebrews in at some point, um, talks about Moses had glory in the house of God, but Christ has glory as one greater over the house. In other words, he's the king. But in the passage, there's one house. There is one people of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Romans chapter 11. The Gentiles are grafted in. What are they being grafted into if not the covenant promises of God? Uh, Galatians chapter 3. The seed of Abraham. Who is the seed? Christ and anyone who has faith in Christ. That's why we can call Abraham our father, even if we're not Jewish. Uh, all of these things just speak against this classical revised dispensational view. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Peter uses that. Peter also, First Peter also uses the kingdom of priests language to apply it to the church, which is the Exodus language applied to Israel. Now, there are differences between Israel and the church. The church is on this side of the cross, which that does make a difference. But at the end of the day, what the Old Testament saints look forward to, we look back to. And the, the new heavens and the new earth, and even when we get to heaven before then, if, if, the Lord, uh, if we die before the Lord returns, 
the new heavens and the new earth will will be with Jewish brothers and sisters. Like you'll walk up to Abraham or Isaac or some of those Old Testament heroes uh, and, and they'll be there. So the whole hermeneutic doesn't work. But I want to talk for a minute about this secret rapture. Doesn't work. Look at 2 Thessalonians. This is Paul writing to a church suffering affliction, and he says this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all of you who are believed because our testimony to you was believed. So Paul's writing to a church and he's writing to a church that's suffering and under affliction and they want it to stop. And what does he say their hope is? What's their hope? Jesus is going to get him. So if there was a pre-tribulational rapture and Paul is writing to the church, now this is an argument from silence, admittedly, but it makes sense. If Paul's writing to the church and there's a pre-tribulational rapture and the church is suffering, what do you think the ultimate, what do you think the more immediate hope would be? We're getting out of here, right? We're going to get raptured. Don't worry, guys. When it starts getting worse, God will rapture the church. We won't be here. We'll be up in heaven and the tribulation. Yeah, that'll suck, but <laughs> not our problem. It's not what Paul says. Not what Paul says. He says you're being afflicted and the final hope, your hope in in this now i mean he could have said hey if you die you'll be in the presence of the lord so don't worry about it like that's true too but what he's saying in in this earthly life should the lord um should i live till the lord's return and i'm suffering as a christian what's my hope the lord comes down and he comes all the way down and he judges those people that are persecuting the church the church isn't taken away in the rapture. There's not a secret rapture of the church. The, the idea of the rapture of the church, you want to talk about church history, it's very new. It only, you, you can't find it before the late 1800s. And it really only comes out of that Darby Schofield vein. And it took off like wildfire, primarily because of the Schofield Bible and the Schofield study notes. Um, but it's not true it's it's just not right it's not biblical just another verse that tends to get thrown out um first thessalonians 4 17 says and then we who are alive it's talking about the coming of the lord will be caught up uh together with them in the clouds so uh they're worried the, the thessalonian church is worried about 
um, believers who have fallen asleep in the Lord, what's going to happen to them when the Lord returns? They're going to miss it. And Paul says, no, they'll rise first. They'll meet Jesus in the clouds. They'll experience the resurrection. We who are alive will also join them and get our resurrected bodies. We'll be caught up together with them. So the dispensationalist says, yes, see, we're caught up in the clouds. We're with the Lord forever. That means we go back up into heaven. So it's like Jesus comes down halfway, meets us all, and we go back to heaven. But here, the language of caught up, uh, now it uses the verb, but the noun, uh, apentesius, uh, it's actually a word that was used to describe going out of the city, meeting someone, someone honored guest or whatever, and returning with them back to the city. So they did this a lot with, with Caesars and imperial entrances, right? A, a conquering king comes back, you're all excited, you go out, you have maybe your palm branches, your, your whatever you're using to celebrate, banners, cloth, you know, you're yelling, screaming at the top of your lungs. You don't wait for the guy to get into your city. You go out one hilltop over, you're cheering, here he comes up over the hill with his victorious army, and then, you know, he keeps marching into the city, and you're all around him like, yeah, he kicked their butts, our city's safe, you know. Here's the Caesar, isn't he awesome? And you just have a wild party like all the way into the city. That's the word, that's the concept there in the word. Now the word is the verb, but it, it was a well-known uh, usage. That is not a pre-trib rapture. That is, rapture just means being taken up, right? But a lot of times when people talk about the rapture today, they mean the whole thing, taken up, taken to heaven, taken away, <coughs> tribulation. The rapture is simply the return of the Lord. As he's coming down, we go up to meet him in the air, and we come down the rest of the way with him to celebrate his triumph as he's coming to take care of our enemies. Whether you're historic, pre-mill, or um, amillennial, that's how you view the verse. That's the right view of the verse. Um, but the dispensationalist says this passage is about them escaping upward into heaven. Uh, just one more. In 2 Thessalonians, the church is again worried that they missed possibly the day of the Lord. Uh, and then he says this, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So... The post-millennialist says that that rebellion already happened. That's the preterist view. They say it was future from Paul's time, but from our time, it's in the past. That's not an accurate view. This is talking about the day of the Lord, the return of the Lord. And they're worried, did we miss the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And Paul says, no, you didn't miss it because the man of lawlessness, or what we call in Revelations the Antichrist, has to come before the Lord returns. Again, that fits within the, the uh, amillennial and the historic premillennial view. Questions about that? I did spend a little more time on the dispensational stuff, probably because it's one of the more prominent views in evangelicalism, uh, and it's also just, it doesn't do a good job with the scriptures. Like, there are some people that do hold to the pre-trib rapture 
that don't get into all the dispensational extras. And that's okay. But really that view was birthed out of dispensationalism. And, and when I say that's okay, I mean like don't call these people heretics, like treat them as good brothers uh, and sisters in Christ. But, but I do think it's a view that, that's not doing the best job in interpreting scripture. <coughs> Lowe's. Yeah, that's a good question, and it probably depends who and where you survey. So dispensationalism as a whole, as the big system, I think is kind of on a decline. It's not in its heyday. I do think on a popular level, it's probably preacher raptures probably staying pretty consistent because that's just what I think everybody was raised on. That's what everybody knows. Um, Unless you're spending time studying scripture, you know, like, honestly, like how many anybody, how many know somebody that read the Left Behind books or saw the movie? You, you know, if it's you, just raise your hand and pretend like, yeah, I know somebody. Uh, you know, like, like it, it was, and I'm not, it was popular, but popular doesn't make it right. And, and honestly, they're books, they're works of fiction. Even if you wanted to study what a dispensationalist believed, you wouldn't go there. But, but that popularizing effect is, like, who wants to sit here on a Sunday night and, and you know, listen to somebody talk about eschatology for two hours other than, other than us? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Check is in the mail. Um, you know, most people, although I guess, you know, if you want to watch cheap Christian movies or you want to hear somebody talk, eh, um, <laughs> it's just not good art. Um, um, anyways, questions or comments before I get myself in trouble? Yeah. Okay. So I, I grew up being taught this. Yeah. I won't say that I understood it totally. I kind of just create a movie in my head when they are saying all this. Um, yeah. I think the biggest like question mark that I've always had was like, okay, so where the church, you know, the rapture, stuff like that. You know, where was Christ? Like, it's us. Yeah. Like that always felt so distant and separate from me. Yeah. And I never understood like I don't know like when I see a Jew, do I just like go up like I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> Share the gospel. So this this is the interesting thing. Um, dispensationalists have been very passionate about Israel. Like like Jews for Jesus largely I think started as dispensational. That's one messianic Jewish thing. Um, you have guys like Reynolds Showers, who was a, a dispensational guy. I think he taught at, at uh, Philadelphia College of the Bible before it was Karn and, and some other places. I think he was the editor of the big magazine on it. And I mean, they were very passionate about, even in this age, reaching Jews, seeing them, because they would be like, these, these are God's people. There's something special. So, so you might be tempted to think, wow, if, if they're seeing the church in and Israel as separate, doesn't that lead them to be somewhat anti-Semitic and not caring about the Jews? And it's like actually just the opposite. I mean, a lot of, and now this gets us into policy, right, uh, po and politics, but you know, a lot of the, in the, the 1940s and 50s, 
the impetus for Israel becoming a state and, and that it, America should always support modern day Israel flows out of this dispensational mindset of, of they're God's people. Um, look, I don't know politics. Um, I don't think the current nation of Israel is necessarily a precursor, even if you're dispensational, a precursor. They don't have to be connected to what's gonna happen in dispensationalism, if you're a dispensationalist. Um, sometimes the, the America's zeal for Israel, I, I wonder if it's just misguided theology, you know, not looking at the whole picture. Um, but look, the Middle East over there is a mess and I don't pretend to know like who's in the right or who's in the wrong. Like it, it's not a simple, these guys are right, these guys are wrong. But, but that sort of, there are people in America that kind of are like, we always have to side with Israel because they're God's people and look what happens in the Old Testament if you stand against Israel. Well, okay, but you know, like, yeah, Israel very unique, blessed in many respects. They have the covenants, they have, Paul even talks about them being his brothers according to the, their heritage, you know. Um, we should pray that Israel gets saved, that the Jewish people get saved, not just on an individual sense, but in a corporate kind of mass conversion sense. I, I think the, old, the, the New Testament leads us to look forward to that. The whole idea in Romans 11 is that, that the Gentiles are being grafted in because the Jews were hardened of heart. How much more will the full number of the Gentiles coming in lead to Israel being saved? And, I, and there I think he means Jews, like, like God has a plan still to save people from every tongue, tribe, and race, and that includes the people who had these covenants given to them in, the, you know, in their biological forefathers. So what do you do? Just share the gospel. You know, like invite them to church. Like, you know, they can join the church. That's that's the whole uh, Ephesians two of how Christ is our peace, and He took down the dividing wall between Jew and and Gentile. We, we look like because God had a plan through Abraham, we get spiritual benefits. We should be incredibly grateful. Uh, we should weep that, that the people who, who are of this lineage have, have missed the promises of God. Now, that shouldn't make us arrogant in that, you know, because we didn't get it because we were smarter. We, we only understood it through the grace and mercy of God, right? Um, but we believe the Old Testament is our scriptures, too, like, now, no, honestly, some would probably say that sounds anti-Semitic because we interpret Jesus as the fulfillment. But yeah, Jesus is the fulfillment. Our, our Messiah is Jewish. And he rules as, as a Jewish man in a Jewish body that's resurrected. All right. Last one. Historic premillennialism, or as we call it, the, the right one. Uh, you can tell where, where uh, I and Rose are. So you have this idea again. Here's the timeline, the cross. Big difference here. Kingdom is inaugurated. So you'll remember uh, back, way back, kingdom postponed, 
Well, historic premillennialism does not have that problem. So we're here, there will be a coming tribulation. Uh, typically it's seen as seven years, although the premillennial, historic premillennialist is not as dogmatic on that. Uh, the seven years comes out of some verses in Daniel and debating some of the numbers and times there. But there definitely is a coming antichrist, a man of lawlessness, same view that the amillennialists hold. You'll see there that we go to meet God, uh, Christ in the air, but we come back down with him, uh, right back down. So there is no secret rapture. This is the big distinction. No secret rapture, no church being taken away. The, the future is going to be the coming of the Antichrist and then the coming of the Lord. Uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, in that respect. <laughs> uh, then you have, uh, when the Lord returns, you have the resurrection of the believers. Uh, and we'll look at Revelation 20 in a minute. Uh, then you have a thousand year period where Jesus reigns and rules. There's, there's one view is that there will be no, no one evil on earth during that time. That's not the most prominent view. Usually what, what the premillennialist says is when Jesus returns, uh, Revelation 19, he destroys the beast and he destroys anybody that was in the army of the beast at that battle. But there were people that were aligned with the beast that weren't in the army. So, so there's still like people that are sinful in the world. And so what is, what is this, by the way, is where the church is triumphant then. We see Christ reign visibly here on earth. It's for an extended period of time. Some will say it's, it's exactly a thousand years. Some will say it's just symbolic of a large period of time. We would say that this is when um, the, the weapons are beaten into plowshares. There's no more war. There, there are still sinful people on the earth, but Christians are judging between them. They're solving disputes. They're ruling. It's a time of peace and prosperity. Satan is bound. And by bound, we mean thrown in the abyss where he can't get out. It's not a, a spiritual binding. It's, a, it's, I'll say, a more literal binding. Like he's not roaming the earth seeking those he might devour. Um, then at the end, Satan is let out. He goes to the four corners of the earth, uh, deceives uh, people. And there's the final Armageddon. And then the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of the unrighteous. It's a resurrection unto judgment. And after the judgment, we have the new heavens and the new earth. I think something to keep in mind is all of these views, the ultimate hope is the new heavens and the new earth. And, and look, when you as a believer die, if you die before the, the return of the Lord, you're absent from your body. Your body is asleep, but you are present with the Lord. But being a spirit in heaven with your body in the ground is what we call the intermediate state. That's not the final hope. The final hope is our resurrection, and then ultimately everything gets recreated, new heavens and new earth. So you remember when Paul says in Romans 8 that, we, that, that creation itself groans, and it, it's been subjected to futility. Uh, why do we have weeds in the garden? Well, because of Adam's curse. Why do we have disease? Why do we have bacteria? Why do we have sicknesses? All of these things because of sin. 
The new heavens and the new earth erases all of that. It's our final hope. We dwell in glorified bodies, resurrected glorified bodies, in a glorified creation. There is no more temple because God's glory permeates all of creation. The new Jerusalem comes down and everything is set right. So, kingdom of God is inaugurated in resurrection and ascension. Good. That, that to me, is a non-negotiable when it comes to your eschatology. The Christ's present reign is now a Davidic fulfillment. Again, good. To me, that is a non-negotiable. Uh, uh, the kingdom is spreading and growing. Both the amillennialists and the premillennialists would say, like, in this age, as the church goes out, yeah, the kingdom is growing. You have the the parable of, of the mustard seed and how it grows, starts out small and grows really big. Like, yeah, it, it's not a triumphant kingdom in the sense of the post-millennialists. It's, it's spiritual as people are, are getting saved. Uh, you have the wheat and the tares where, where there are unbelievers and believers mixed together for a season in the kingdom. That's what you have in, in this age. There is a visible future bodily reign with saint or of the saints with christ in the presence of his enemies this to me is why i am pre-millennial and not amillennial we are told in the scriptures that we will reign with christ there is a sense by virtue of being raised with christ now spiritually there is a sense that i belong to christ and have new life in him and in a sense reign with christ but scripture looks forward to, to it in a more specific way than that sense. It's a bodily reign in a resurrection with Christ. And this is key, in the presence of enemies. Like we are going to reign bodily in the new heavens and the new earth, right? So you could just be like, well, you know, I've got a spiritual reign now and new heavens and the new earth will have the bodily reign with Christ in resurrected. But the scriptures hold out for a season where we are judging the earth with Christ. The amillennialists would say, well, that just happens at the judgment. And what I want to say is, no, I, I think it's an important part. And I think it's why we have the millennium. I'm going to move to Revelation 20. And I want to just talk you through it. You don't have to agree with me, but I am going to lay out what Revelation 20 says and why I think it lends itself uh, to a historic pre-mill view. The challenge, though, is this. The book of Revelation and Revelation 20 is the only place the millennium is specifically mentioned in this sort of schema. And even George Eldon Ladd, a, a prominent, uh, he's passed away now, but a very prominent historic pre-mill said something to the effect of, you know, if it wasn't for Revelation 20, everything else we could fit into an amillennial uh, kind of scheme. You have to be careful with Revelation 20 because it is apocalyptic literature. There's stuff that's meant to be symbolic. But I think if we take Revelation on its own terms, there's enough clues, even with all the symbolic imagery, to tell us there is some sort of concrete view that, that remains to happen. It's interesting in the past, the two biggest fights, if you will, was between the amillennialist and, and the dispensational premillennialist. 
And the amillennialists are right when it comes to this inauguration of the kingdom. The dispensationalists, I think, are right when it comes to some of these aspects of Revelation 20. And I think we just have to chalk it up to progressive revolution. That, that this is the last book of the New Testament that is written. And so we shouldn't be totally surprised that, there's, that we're given a little bit more detail of some of the ordering of the events. So let's just go into it. I'm just going to read a few of the verses and make some comments. So this is right after the destruction of the beast. And the beast and the false prophet in, are in Revelation are then thrown into the lake of fire. The three figures, the, the dragon or Satan, the beast, who's the Antichrist, and the false prophet, p scholars have noted they're sort of, in the book of Revelation, like uh, an anti-trinity, right? We have like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, you have Satan, the beast, and, and the false prophet. That's kind of like the nemesis, if you will, the anti-trinity. The, the, they, they've noticed some parallels that go on there with how the three operate. And, and it's right, like Satan loves idolatry. So what better way than to deceive people with sort of a false trinity, if you will. Uh, so two of the three have just been thrown into the lake of fire. Then you have this. Then I saw, which the debate there with that is the, the, the premillennialist says, Revelation 19 and 20 flow chronologically, one right into the other. The amillennialist says the words then I saw indicate a new vision. Paul, uh, John is backing up and kind of giving us a big picture of the whole church age. But here's why I don't think that's right. Let's keep reading. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in, the, in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed, him over, sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer. There's a big thing going on in the book of Revelation where he and the beast are deceiving the nations until the thousand years were ended. After that, we must be released for a while. You have to ask the question, if you're trying to decide between amillennialism and premillennialism, when is the binding of Satan? When is this revelation binding? Is it binding when Jesus first came and that kind of binding the man in the house? Or is it a future binding that remains to happen? Where is the binding of Satan? So is the abyss symbolic? of his power uh, being um, restrained? Or is the abyss a place where he is thrown and put? Then you have to ask, how does Revelation 20 verses 1 to 3, if you're going to say Satan is bound in this age, and this is symbolic of everything going on now, how do you fit this idea that Satan is bound and couldn't deceive the nations with 1 Peter 5.8? 1 Peter 5.8, Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking those he might devour. 2 Timothy 2.26 warns us about those who fall into the deceptive schemes of Satan. Right. Ephesians 6.11, we're to put on the armor of God to resist 
the schemes of the evil one. 2 Corinthians 4.4, he's the God of this age who blinds men in unbelief. Now, the amillennialists would say, at least with that one, well, the fact that people are getting saved means that God is undoing this deception of Satan. See, he is bound, his power is limited. But the question again is, is the abyss and this chain symbolic, like figurative metaphorical language, or is it describing something more concrete? I think the abyss in Revelation is described to us as a place. Things go in and out of it. So you have in Revelation 12, five, the male, ch this is again, symbolic language, but basically you have uh, the symbol of Mary or, or perhaps Israel giving the male child, uh, he's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, that's his ascension. Then there's this war in heaven, the great dragon is thrown down to the ancient serpent who is called the devil, the deceiver of the whole world, he is thrown down to the earth. So what you have in Revelation 12 is this scheme of history there is the Messiah being born. He's put on the throne. It's all highly symbolic. But when the Messiah gets on the throne, he's, Satan is thrown down to earth. He's the deceiver of, and he's thrown down to earth. And then we see later on in verse 12 saying, the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. I think Revelation 12 is telling us what Satan is doing during the church age, and that's, he's running around deceiving people. <laughs> he's not chained. I think if we take Revelation on its own terms and even accounting for the symbolic language. Um, Revelation 19 and 20, I want you to notice, it says there the two, the beast and the prophet were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So all three were judged, but two were thrown into the lake of sulfur. The rest, all the armies, die, they're killed. So you have all the armies that were gathered. Then you have this, then I saw an angel. Then you have and, same word, and, and, and I saw, and. I think it's meant to show connection. And then you get down here to verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. This is after the judgment. So what you have, I think, is a linear progression. When the Lord returns, second coming, Revelation 19, two of them were thrown into the lake of fire. Then, for a period, Satan is chained up so he can't deceive anybody. And that's how you get a time of prosperity uh, and you get the kingdom being visible on earth. And then finally, Satan, after he deceives the nations one last time, is thrown into the lake of fire. And that connects us back to where we started. So here's my first conclusion. While Revelation has much symbolic imagery the bottomless pit or the abyss is not a symbolic place. Remember the demons when they encountered Jesus, what did they beg? Don't throw me into the abyss. It's not just being symbolically changed or chained. It's a real place where demons and the Satan can be confined. Now, 
I don't know what this, I, I don't know how you get a bottomless pit that doesn't work with normal physics in three dimensions. But, but what I mean is it's real in the sense that, you know, Satan isn't omnipresent, right? He's not everywhere in creation. He can only manifest his presence in places. He's also not omniscient. But whatever's going on here, he is confined <coughs> to a locale so that he cannot roam the earth. There's another place in Revelation 9 where locusts come out of the pit. We think that's probably demons. Uh, I think Revelation 12 and 20 give us the contrast of Satan's activity. Uh, there are some amillennialist scholars that try to say Revelation 12 and 20 are showing the same thing, but from different sides. But I, I think it's pretty clear. Jesus goes to heaven in Revelation 12. Where is Satan kicked down to? He's kicked down to earth. He's still waging war on this earth. When is, the, when is he not waging war on the earth? Well, this comes later, I think, when he's in the abyss. Is Satan restrained now in gospel proclamation and preaching? Like, yeah, absolutely. The kingdom of God is advancing. But I don't think that is what Revelation 20 is trying to describe. Let me move on to the next thing. So then you have this issue of how are the saints reigning? Is this a present reign? We do presently reign with the Lord in some sense. Or is Revelation 20 describing something in the future? Revelation 20. Then I saw, so this is right after he's confined. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the thrones... I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So when is the authority to judge committed to the saints? Is it committed like some amillennialists would say, to the believer now, while we reign with Christ. Paul says in the future, 1 Corinthians 6, 2-11, we will judge the world, we'll also judge angels. So the scope of that judgment is world. When then does the coming to life take place? Before or after they had not worshipped the beast? In other words, is there coming to life while waiting under the throne. So there, there's two views here, even on the amillennial side. And I hope I'm not confusing you even more. One view says this coming to life described here, this being on the thrones, is what happens to every believer when they get saved. Happens every time and it's ongoing. Another view uh, by Gregory Beale, who's a really good New Testament scholar, he argues uh, except for being amillennial, he's really good. No, just kidding. Uh, he argues that, that this is kind of like a temporary reigning in heaven. In other words, they're martyred, they're killed here on earth, they go to heaven and they wait and they're reigning there in heaven under the throne. So, so it's, but it is kind of like, when does the coming to life take place? Well, it does happen after they had not worshiped the beast. So it can't be sort of a description of our salvation. 
which is coming to life, right? We're dead in our sins, we come up. But that's not what Revelation is talking about, something different. So again, for B, they came to life and reigned. The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were ended. So whatever happens in the saints coming to life is paralleled with the rest of the dead coming to life. And if you read down through the chapter, the rest of the dead is all the wicked people coming to life. So the two resurrections are the same type of resurrection because it distinguishes what happens to the believer versus what happens to the rest. Um, the rest of the dead did not come until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So most would say that the this is the first resurrection refers back to grammatically, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And then it's this sort of, but the rest didn't come to life until that had ended. Yeah, that's none of these views, really. I mean, I guess they kind of would fit into something. That's more the intermediate state view. That, that, would be, that would be a separate debate, like what's happening to the believers who die before the Lord returns. So I had some friends in college that believed in soul sleep, but when it came to this end time stuff, they were also amillennial. But kind of a good point, because in Revelations, when someone's martyred, you see them under the throne of Christ, not asleep. <laughs> um, does the question then is this, does John use they came to life in two ways? You can do this, and, and good literature will sometimes do this. You can play off of words. Uh, you, can, you can mean it with one nuance here, and then the second time you mean it with another nuance. You know, like, uh, I can't think of a good English example, but the idea here would be they, they came to life meaning spiritual, and then they came to life meaning bodily. But the question is, is that what John is doing? And I would say no, because he distinguishes the coming to life with Christ versus the rest who came to life. And, and if the first resurrection is spiritual, and then you have the rest coming to life, you're kind of left going, well, when does the believer get the actual bodily resurrection if one is spiritual and one is bodily? Um, so you have language in this passage of first resurrection and you have language of second death. What's not stated is what a first death might be and what a second resurrection might be. So these are the views. Here is amillennial view number one. The first resurrection is that spiritual resurrection coming to life of regeneration. The first death is bodily. The second resurrection is bodily. Everybody gets it. And then you have the second death, which is the death of those who are raised to damnation. That's one view. This is kind of the old school, amillennial. Augustine held this view. Another view is that the first death is bodily. Everybody dies. But believers experience a sort of first resurrection in heaven. They come to life and reign in heaven, is what they would say is going on in Revelation 20. Then everybody gets a bodily resurrection, which I don't think comports with this idea of the rest referring to the next resurrection. The second death is damnation. Everybody agrees on that. Here's what I think is, is going on. This first death is bodily. 
unless you're alive when the Lord returns, you die. Your body goes into the grave. Then you will, there will be a first resurrection. I think it's the believer rising from the dead when Christ returns. I think this idea of they came to life and reigned with Christ is what was the first. The second resurrection is if you scroll down or turn, read down into Revelation 20, verses 11 to 14, you have the resurrection of everyone else, those who were wicked. It's a resurrection to judgment. And those people then experience the second death, which is being cast into the lake of fire. Now, if you're saved, you don't experience the second death. You're not condemned. You may, and everybody up to this point, has experienced the first death. But we look forward to the day where that death, physical death, is conquered. But when you've experienced the first resurrection, the resurrection unto righteousness of believers, you will not experience the second death. The unbeliever is resurrected, but it's resurrection to their own condemnation so they can stand before God in judgment. What the premillennialist argues is that there is a dividing up of when the believer and the non-believer experience resurrection and there is a thousand year reign in between. And the purpose of that reign, the purpose of that space is to continue to demonstrate the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ in conquering and subduing the earth under his authority. It's, it's a fulfilling of Old Testament promises where he would rule in the presence of his enemies, where he would establish peace. This would be the phase where believers also are reigning with Christ bodily and judging the earth. The amillennialist says that, that the believers only judge the earth at the day of judgment. But I think that at the day of judgment, we see a focus on God judging them before the throne. And I think what we see is space in the millennium for us to continue to fulfill these promises of God. So um, this is my last conclusion. So Daniel 12, 1 to 3 talks about a resurrection of the dead and only seems to, to refer to one resurrection. But I think with more progressive revelation, John shows us the first that shows us a first resurrection and then one for the rest of the dead. If the rest of the dead, the unbeliever, are resurrected bodily, but the first resurrection is heavenly or spiritual, when do believers get the bodily resurrection? I think believers get the bodily resurrection when the Lord returns, and that's what Revelation 20 is talking about. Revelation 5 looks forward to that day where we shall reign on earth. Revelation 24 describes thrones exercising judgment and a coming uh, to life in order to bring the reign to bear over all creation. I think it's different than the future reign we have in the new heavens and the new earth. I think part of the cool thing about the kingdom of God is not only do we get to be involved in, in advancing it now when we do like evangelism and we do discipleship and we help people grow, 
we get to reign with Christ in a season where he is establishing peace over all things and we get to be a part of seeing him restore the earth before the final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. I know not everybody agrees with that view of, of the millennium. Um, I get more concerned about the inauguration of the kingdom elements than I do about disagreeing over what the thousand years is. That, to me, is where the real issue is. Yeah. I find that very interesting when the word says, heaven and earth may pass, but his word will remain. And then here it's talking about he's going to restore the earth currently, but then the new heaven, new earth will come. So that's kind of interesting. Just because yeah. of the comments and stuff. Yeah. Any other questions, comments? Yeah. <laughs> but there is something Jesus said um, in uh, the Bible. Um, the disciples were talking about, um, well, I guess they were excited that they were able to cast out demons. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. Uh, and then Jesus said, you know, that he saw Satan fall like lightning. Yeah. When, what, what is, what is that and when did that happen? Yeah. Considering that he's God in the flesh. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know that I've totally made up my mind on that. That could be a reference to seeing Satan fall uh, before creation. You know, like Satan did rebel. He was created as, as a holy angel uh, and he rebelled against God. I think another plausible option is he's talking about Satan is, in a sense, dethroned by the death and resurrection of Christ and, and his ascension. So I, I think there is something to the argument that that Satan, um, who's called the god of this age, because he, he was allowed to, to roam the earth, is restrained by by the work of, of Jesus Christ. Not he said that before he died. Yeah. So that's the weird part. So it, it would be some kind of like prophetic imagery uh, language. Okay. Um, I, to be honest, I haven't totally made up my mind on that because okay. it's one of those things where like. I know the different options, but I'm not sure. And I haven't said <laughs> it recently, you know, like, and I reserve the right to change my view. <laughs> Anybody else? Hopefully, hopefully you're not more confused. I threw a lot at you. Yeah. Yeah, what you mean look like in terms of how he'll act or? Just whatever comes to mind. Yeah. I, I mean, he's going to be the Antichrist, right? Like, like, so I think one thing is he's going to be highly persuasive. There's going to be something enticing about him. You, you think of like somebody who's like a really good schmoozer and can like pull everybody. Like, like people are going to love him. Like. Here's the problem with pop culture, right? Demons always have horns, so you can tell what they are. But true evil often masquerades as an angel of light. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So, so the man of lawlessness, yeah, he's gonna 
We're going to see him setting out and establishing things in rebellion against God. Perhaps that will relate to some things in Israel, like, um, you know, attacking Jews or, or something like that. Um, but I think what's going what's gonna to be scary is how captivating and awe-inspiring he's going to be to everybody who's not a believer. There, there's going to be real deception uh, that goes on. There's going to be spiritual warfare in that sense. So it, it, you think it's going to be an actual one person? Yeah, I do think it, it will be a real person. I do think as Paul talks about the man of lawlessness and and as John talks about an antichrist, I do think, John's a little tricky, right? John in, in 1 John says there are many antichrists, right? Like anybody that denies Jesus came in the flesh is an antichrist. So there are tons of antichrists out there today. But I think what John does look forward to is there is going to be someone who will rise to prominence, lead the people of the world in rebellion against the church, will be basically a puppet for, for Satan, and it's going to look really persuasive and, and convincing in, in that respect. So I do think there is a the Antichrist, a, a particular a particular per like a real person, not a spirit, not an angel, a real person that is just that evil and wicked and is, and is raised up and, and just leads a massive rebellion against God. Yeah. So um, the end that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24, uh, do you think that already happened? No. No, I think when he says then the end will come, I think he's talking about final things. So it's like such a mockery. What? What about like such a mockery? Like how he refers to uh, how like the house will be left desolate? Yeah. Well, so Matthew 24 is a little bit tricky because I do think what Jesus does is he lays out some things looking for the destruction of Jerusalem. And then I, th there, I think there is an element there that's looking at the second coming. Uh, I've walked through it before. I preached through it once a number of years ago. But like standing here now, like not having the text in front of me, like walking through that in my mind would, would be a little tricky. But, but I, so I do think, you know, I do think some of the persecution and the armies surrounding Jerusalem, I, I do think some of that is AD 70. I'm pretty sure the phrase, then the end will come, is a little later when it's referring to something future. So, so Matthew does have destruction of Jerusalem in view, but he also, just like the Old Testament prophets do, they often look at the destruction of Jerusalem with an eye towards something worse that is going to happen and the day of the Lord and the end of things. And I think, I think that's what Jesus is doing as well. Uh, are you talking about the one where he, um, like, he sees the um, the tree? The I can't think of what tree it is. The, oh, that one. Yeah, that part. I'd have to go back and look, but I, I think that part probably is elements that was fulfilled in AD seventy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I do think there are places in the New Testament where believers are, are spiritually kind of like uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Jewish person. 
Um, but I do think, like, for example, in Romans 11, there will be a conversion of Jews who are, are ethnically, biologically descendants of, of Abraham. So it just kind of depends what passage uh, you're in. Los, do you want to wrap it up or you want me to pray? Oh, sure. Well, guys, uh, thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah, we don't even always have to do it like in the this kind of setting. If you want to put everybody in a circle, I'm cool with that too. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely good. Yeah, we could do that. Um, all right, so I'm gonna pray and then uh, pray for Tim and and Sammy and uh, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Aaron, Tim and Aaron. uh, Pray for them. Uh, So yeah, uh, let's pray and then we can wrap it up. Father, we.